All right, um, so welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Leslie Kordish, I'm the CEO of Trek Hunt, and it's my pleasure to welcome Marty Kagan here at IceMQ in Budapest. Uh, welcome, Marty. Thank you, uh, Marty is referred to as the godfather, you refer to as the godfather of product management basically all across the world, and probably everyone or anyone who've encountered this discipline have read your book inspired and uh, an image video of your blog, Silicon Valley Product Group. So, <clears throat> as a starter question, uh, for newbies, I would say, uh, could you please um, define or tell what the responsibilities and roles of a product manager is, uh, are? Well, it, it turns out to be a pretty hard question just because there's, uh, there's a lot of different kinds of companies that have product managers. Yeah. And, at the highest level, there are uh, what we call true tech-powered product companies, mm -hmm. which have a model of uh, how to produce technology-powered products that depends on a very strong product manager. Mm -hmm. And then there are uh, most companies, uh, and they're all over the world, including in Silicon Valley, most companies where they have a different model where honestly they don't really even need product managers but they have somebody with that name mm -hmm. or they're often just called a product owner mm -hmm. uh, and the responsibilities of that person are as much less so i taught my world is only for the tech power product companies so i have to be careful though because i don't want to describe this really difficult job mm -hmm. that is not necessary for companies where it's really the executives that are making the product decisions. Now, that's how it is in, in, unfortunately, a lot of the companies in the world. I see. Uh, but I don't talk about those worlds much because those they almost never innovate. And uh, it's, it's really a very frustrating place for a product person or a good engineer or a good designer to work. So, if we're talking about good product companies, the places like Amazon, and Apple, and Google, and uh, Netflix, and Etsy, companies like this, then they have a very uh, important notion of a product team. They're also called like Squadify, and Spotify, another good uh, product company, they call them squads. Mm -hmm. But all of those companies depend on a model of product manager that's um, it's a hard job. It's a hard job, and those people really have four big responsibilities. For uh, the first one is they have to have deep understanding of who their customers really are, uh, and I mean really understanding how they make purchase decisions. Do they have approval issues? Do they have uh, sort of local or country issues? Do they have uh, uh, is the buyer different from the different kinds of users? What are all the different kinds of users? Who are the influencers? That whole dynamic. And so, because without obviously knowing who your customer is, you pretty much have no chance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in that other model I described, those people rarely even visit their customers. So it's a different model. But in the model I'm talking about, deep knowledge of the customer is the first, and, and often called table stakes, the most critical. The second big responsibility they have is to really understand the data that's generated. Mm -hmm. Today, with most companies, even startups, uh, most startups, there's enough data 
that we can uh, learn a lot about our customers, not by what they say, but what they do. Mm -hmm. And so the analytics is, is huge, and the product managers spend about an hour of their day with the analytics, with the data. And they have to bring that to the team. Mm -hmm. Data analysts are there to help, but not there to do the job. Uh, the third big responsibility of the product manager, which is usually the hardest for them, is to have a deep understanding of not their customer's business, but their business. Mm -hmm. which is actually even harder because we need to know really all the dynamics of our business. We need to know how our products are actually funded, how they're paid for, what mm -hmm. the costs are. We need to know how we make money, what the revenue is, what the mix is, what our contribution is. We need to know things like what does it cost to acquire a customer, what is our lifetime value of a customer. We need to know the economics of our product. We also need to know how it's marketed. We need to know how it's sold. And that may be multiple ways it is sold, but you have to know how that product actually makes it out to the market, to the customers. Mm -hmm. um, and different sales channels have different uh, constraints and different capabilities. You have to understand that. You have to understand the legal considerations, which is significant, especially here in Europe. Privacy considerations, security considerations. Partnerships with uh, other companies, business relationships. You have to understand all the elements of the company because it's not enough to come up with solutions that work that our customers actually love, which to be honest is not actually that hard. The harder part is they have to love them and they have to be viable in yeah. your company. For example, I'm in Hungary right now and Uber is not allowed. So it doesn't really matter that Uber has this amazing app for drivers, an amazing app for riders, because it's not allowed in Hungary, which is endlessly frustrating. <laughs> so that is, uh, that's what we mean by uh, understanding how the business works and the constraints. And, and then the fourth big responsibility for a product manager is to understand the industry you're in and what the trends are, which trends are relevant, what the competitive landscape is, and uh, and that's what we're looking for. I see, I see. It's I a hard job. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell that as well. <clears throat> so, um, we've, been, we've been talking about uh, technology companies and, and product management in terms of like, digital technology. And you have met a lot of product teams uh, and product managers uh, in probably the US and Europe and Asia as well. And I'm wondering if you, uh, while you had these encounters, have you identified significant differences maybe uh, between product management practices uh, considering these geographical regions? Well, it used to be a lot, honestly, 20 years ago, there was a big difference. Mostly, it wasn't about Europe, to be honest. It was more about Silicon Valley was doing things one way and most of the rest of the world another. Today, that's very different. <laughs> honestly, I forget. I was in London last week. Several of the teams in London are as good as any team in San Francisco, in New York, uh, in Stockholm. I was also in Berlin, Amsterdam. Uh, each year I go to Shanghai, uh, there's a lot of the best companies in the world. They're all over the world, but it's really what I described earlier. 
in any of these places in the world, you will find good teams and really bad teams. <laughs> so in company, that's the the bigger issue today is not where you are on Earth. It's uh, whether you're using the tech product model or the uh, you know, which is often sometimes called the product culture, mm -hmm. yeah, for using the old style IT. I see, I see. Um, all right, then, uh, let me just use a, a cheat sheet, a last compression. Um, so, you started off as a product manager. Um, no, I actually started off as an engineer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's interesting. For, that's ten, for 10 years ago. I see. Long time. How, did, how did you become that product manager? Well, because honestly, like a lot of engineers move to product because they're frustrated with their product manager. Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, <laughs> they realize oh, this is not very good. Uh -huh. uh, and, and I could do that at least as well as that person could. And honestly, it's more than that too. It's at some point, you know, when you're an engineer, you're really trained. Uh, and uh, I'm grateful for my training. I learned to be a developer at a good place at the time. It was HP Labs. It was the uh, sort of known as the Google of the day. It was a great place to learn. But you're really trained in how to do things like reliable, fault-tolerant, scalable, high-performance systems. And that is hugely important, except it's all a waste of time if you're not given something worth building. Mm -hmm. And so you realize that it's not only about building the product right, it's about figuring out the right product to build. And so once I realized that, um, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, at the time I wasn't willing to stop developing, so I did both for several years, but mm -hmm. I, I, I believed it was even more important to focus on the other half of the problem. And, and today I focus almost all my time uh, well, I focus on product teams, uh, so I'm, I'm known more for product manager, but honestly that's just because my view is there's already great thinkers on, product, on engineering. There's so many mm -hmm. really good engineering thought leaders, and I believe if you follow best practices in engineering, there's no reason not to, but that's well established. And similarly, I know great thought leaders in design. But in product management seemed to be an area that not many people were thinking about or talking about. And so I focused my work, which mostly I advise companies, I focused my work on product teams. So I'm, I'm most interested in the combination. But I talk most about product manager because that seems to be the area of the biggest confusion and problems. I see, I see. So now that we're, we're getting into product teams and, and in a sense reflecting what you have said that you started becoming more interested uh, like what is the right product to build and deliver. Um, you're, you're talking in your books and in your courses uh, about these different processes in terms of product discovery and product delivery. And um, so I, I call them processes, uh, but they sound like they would be completely different processes and separated from each other. On the other hand, my experience says that they are more like intertwined uh, inside the product team. So um, I think 
probably many product teams has this uh, failure that they're separating or maybe probably too much combining these and forgetting about one part and just focusing on delivery. So what do you think is the sweet spots in uh, organizing these processes and how, how should they work? Yeah, well, again, there's a lot of confusion about that. Uh, so first of all, I try to explain to people these are not processes oh, okay. because uh, there are actually many different processes for delivery. Mm -hmm. For example, Scrum, Kanban, XP. These are different ways of managing your work to do in engineering, uh, which is delivery, building a production quality code. Just like there are many different techniques and processes to use in discovery. So all, all discovery and delivery are two different activities that are going on all the time. Uh, it's just like if I was uh, an engineer and you were quality assurance, we'd be on the same team. I'm writing code, you're testing code. We don't normally think of those as two different processes. We think of them as two different activities that are going on for the same product. Similarly, uh, if we're looking at the discovery versus delivery activities, uh, you might be an engineer focused mostly on delivery. I might be a product manager focused mostly on discovery, but we're talking to each other every day about what we're seeing. So we're one team. We're just doing these things uh, in parallel, mm -hmm. which is kind of common sense because I need to, if I'm a product manager, I need to come up with good things mm -hmm. for the engineers to actually build. Yeah, they need to be uh, a little bit ahead of the game. I see, I see. And like, in terms of like, if it's a product team and these are separate activities, like who should do one type of activity and who should do the other type of activity? Well, the general rule is that if you're a product team, which is what we're talking about here, then everybody on the team is doing it. Both activities. Okay. But it's not true that we do it the same amount mm -hmm. of each day. So if you are a product manager or a designer, then most of your day is discovery activities. That's what you're there for, is to figure out what to build and to design that and to validate that. But you need about an hour every day to answer questions that come up in engineering. Like engineers will identify each case that has not been thought through, mm -hmm. and they'll stay at normally the standby, but they can just come over to your desk and say, hey, uh, we never talked about this. What, is, what should we do? Mm -hmm. And they need to answer that. And similarly, your engineers mostly all day are building production quality software that's reliable, maintainable, scalable, performant. It's hard. Yeah. And that's most of their day. But we ask uh, the engineers to spend a little bit of time a day. It's usually like about a half an hour. Uh, it asks, uh, learning what's going on in Discovery. Mostly what that is is playing prototypes. I see. Trying I see. prototypes out and telling the product manager and designer where it could be better. And also where uh, there's danger in terms of this might touch a legacy system that would require months of work. So don't even think of doing that, that kind of advice. I see. I see. So these are just happening all the time. The whole team is doing both. It's just that we're obviously spending more time on what makes the most sense for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so you you popularized uh, the this Venn diagram of products in terms of that they should be valuable uh, to the business and user and usable and user isn't feasible. Um, and um, recently, um, 
heard from you that you've added ethical to this tree, and why did you do that? Okay, really, I actually added uh, so valuable, usable, feasible was um, what I said about somewhere between 20 and up to five years ago. So, uh, because I, those really are three characteristics. But what I found was, uh, we'll come to the ethics point in a minute, okay. but there's a bigger one first uh, that preceded that, which was, I found that when I talked about feasible, people in their own mind heard one of two things. If they were an engineer, they heard, can we build it? Mm -hmm. If they were an MBA, they heard, is this a viable business? And those are two different things. Now, the truth is, they were both included in feasibility, but I realized that was too general and too ambiguous because both of those things are absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. So about five years ago, I started talking about uh, four dimensions, <laughs> valuable, usable, feasible, and viable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so feasible is talking about the technology components, can we build it, How, uh, do we have the skill sets, do we have the technology stack, do we have the time, the normal elements of feasibility. And then viable is talking about business viability. Does this work with our finance people, with our marketing people, mm -hmm. with our sales people, legal people. And so now that I, I like that calling out the four much better because people aren't missing these major risks. Mm -hmm. It makes it more explicit. So, and that's what I talk about in my new book, and uh, I have for a while now, and I feel much better about that. I saw that people really were getting missing one of the most important things in the old way. That old Venn diagram, I think, is, is not good. Where does monetization fall? In this oh, that would be business viability. Business for sure. Okay. okay. So, because that's a big part of value. How mm -hmm. much does it cost? All right. So. Uh, it's also true that over the last decade or so, I have been, um, and I've been hesitant on this because I feel like uh, it's, it, I don't feel that comfortable telling teams that they should worry more about ethics. I mean, I want them to worry about more about ethics, and I feel like I can have that conversation when I know them, mm -hmm. but it's hard. I feel like I'm preaching mm -hmm. to them. And so, uh, I've, with the teams I really work with, I say, you know, you should also consider should we build it? Mm -hmm. Because there are many things we can do that we realize are not really such a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and companies are often, teams are pressured into doing this because they have to make money, right? They have to keep the business going, but uh, we would much rather try to find an ethical way to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Now, I will also say that Today, I regret not being more vocal about that because I think it's pretty obvious that many teams didn't worry enough about ethics and, um, and many teams were either too idealistic or uh, too naive. I see. So I, I do wish I talked more about it, even though it's uncomfortable. I see, I see, I see. Wow, this is the more of my thing where you can speak out about that. You know, and I, well, there's one other reason I was hesitant. Um, if the product, remember I talked at the beginning, your first question was about really what's the job of product, and I said there's two kinds of product people. The, the ones that are for the teams I'm describing and the others. One of the reasons I was hesitant is because if one of, if that, 
person, as the product manager, is not the type that really understands the business. Mm -hmm. If one of those people just goes to the CEO and says, we shouldn't do this, this is not ethical, the CEO will probably fire that person. Uh -huh. And it's because they don't understand. They're naive. They are naive. Mm -hmm. So they, it's not helpful to the CEO to have uh, somebody who doesn't understand how the business actually works mm -hmm. to bring this to them. They probably know, but they don't have a better way to do it. Yes. What they need is a, a, a real product manager that can help them solve that problem in an ethical way. So I'm always nervous about this because I have met way too many product people that are very naive. They're just very naive. And they have no idea where their paycheck really comes from. And so it's very important that they understand the business before they um, raise those issues. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, like, that's, that's a really interesting point that you're making here. Um, because usually whenever I was, I was talking about these kind of things like valuable and valuable and it's like, you know, we're talking about ethical uh, in this sense, um, I always encountered this, uh, this inherent problem of value in itself is a very loaded or can be a very loaded term. What is value in a quantitative way from a perspective of the user? Like, it's, it's a very subjective to say, like, in my opinion, like, is it valuable to a user or not? Like, is it, is it a binary thing or not? On the other hand, in case of viability or if it's monetizable, it's very easy to put a quantitative measure on that. What's your opinion about this? Like, like how do you approach valuability from a user's perspective? Yeah. Like, how to grasp well, firstly. I first say you're just making it too hard. Okay. It's not that hard. When we talk about value, we're just trying to answer a simple question. Mm -hmm. Would they buy it? Said, would they buy it? Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe they've already bought the product and you're just considering adding a feature, then obviously they've already bought it. So then the question is for value, would they choose to use it? Mm -hmm. Now notice I'm not asking could they use it, that's usability. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. This is, or could they buy it, which is usability. I'm asking, would they buy it, or would they choose to use it? That's a pretty straightforward question. Now, obviously, if you're charging 100 euros for something, it's very different than if you're charging a million euros for yeah. something, right? They might buy it at 100 euros, but not at a million euros. Yeah. So, uh, price plays in that, but we can answer that question based on price, right? Mm -hmm. Based on value proposition. So, we, uh, we have qualitative ways of answering that question, and we have quantitative ways of answering that question. But that's really the question. It's not that complicated. It is, though, the most important question for most products, because most products are actually, um, the reason they don't succeed is not because of usability issues or performance issues, it's because the value is not there. Yeah. It has to be significantly more valuable than the competitor in order to get people to switch. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite thought leaders in the product is a guy named Ben Horowitz, mm -hmm. you may have heard of yeah. um, And Ben likes to argue, oh, this is why product is so hard. It's not enough to match the features of our competitors. We have to be on the order of 10 times better. Uh, we're in Budapest, which is famous for a company I really like, Prezi. Right? Yeah. Prezi is, uh, uh, taking on a giant with, with PowerPoint mm -hmm. uh, and a keynote. And uh, 
if you think of Prezi, though, there are usability challenges. It's a different interaction model. And people, I think, focus way too much on that, because that's not really the issue. The issue is they have to make Prezi on the order of 10 times better than PowerPoint. That's what's hard about it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, most companies don't hit that bar, and so they don't go. And then, but they don't go and say, oh, you're not valuable enough. They say, oh, it's too hard to learn. But we have so many examples of products that are really hard to learn, but sell like crazy because the value is so high. Yeah. Um, but when you get the value right, um, especially if you do that, there's no reason to have, be, have usability issues. We know how to identify and fix those quickly. But uh, if you do your job, you know, and if you really do well, you end up with something like Slack. It just grows like crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because people switched to Slack because they considered it on the order of 10 times Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously this is like huge responsibility on the product team uh, to unlock this tax growth or difference compared to uh, competitive products. Um, so I'm wondering how one can become a great product manager. Like there, there is no university degree of product management. Like you started off as an engineer. For example, I started off as an engineer as well. And I'm, I'm wondering like how to become a, a good product manager. What are the things that one needs to do? Where to find that? Well, the best way, which by the way is, is what I was lucky enough to have, but I still argue this is the best way is that somebody in your company agrees to teach you how to be a product mm -hmm. manager, mm -hmm. coach you, it's the term we normally use for it. It's, it's more than a mentor, right? This is somebody who is literally, at least every week, in my case, it was more like every day, yeah. <laughs> showing me, this is how you do this, this is how you handle this, this is what you have to go solve today. <laughs> and uh, I'll help you if you get confused, but you have to go do this today. And that is, uh, that's the best way to learn, is to work for somebody who has been there and done that. In other words, when you, I get asked this question, I mean, I, and this isn't a good question. If somebody comes to me and says, I really want to learn how to be great at product, how do I do that? The best way is to go work for somebody that is proven at product. The easiest way to know that is if they worked at a company that's proven yeah. good at this and part of the culture, they know what we're talking about. Um, and then uh, they, that, that person personally agrees to coach them, mm -hmm. which will probably go for one to two years. It doesn't happen like in a few minutes or yeah. weeks. It was probably one to two years they will coach them. And, and that means at least every week, giving me one-on-one -on -one feedback sessions and helping me work through all these things I don't know. <laughs> it also requires that the person that's trying to learn be humble. Mm -hmm. Because if they think they know this, they're not going to be looking for help. And that's one of the common things we, we scream for. I don't want product people like that. Those people rarely become good. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but when you have somebody that's humble, not arrogant, right? They know what they don't know. They admit what they don't know. Uh, they, then they, uh, those people, we can teach them. Uh -huh. I see. Yeah, that's the best way. So, so it's, it's probably then a massive challenge for startups who are just like starting off a couple of people, maybe engineers, and and 
you said like the biggest reason or the most common reason by far that's because actually they they build something but the market doesn't want it and users don't want to use it and it's it's not good enough so um, and it's not viable so I'm wondering like what these people can do who who just started a startup like three people three guys go together well first thing I'd say is most of the time in a startup we don't hire people that all don't already know this yeah in fact good venture capitalists almost all of the ones I know they will not invest in a startup unless mm -hmm. one of the co-founders is one of these people okay proven product person okay um, that's critical to them because they know without that the chances of the team mm -hmm. coming up with anything yeah, is yeah, really yeah. low, just very, very low. So normally one of the co-founders is one of these people. And then, uh, you know, once they get a little bigger and they can hire more people, now they have at least one person that can coach them, yeah. right? So that's the model. But uh, in a bigger company, of course, we'll typically have uh, at least a few leaders <laughs> that are experienced in product that can coach. Now, of course, I do spend time with a lot of these leaders trying to convince them this is like the most important thing for them to do is to spend more time coaching. Because uh -huh. not enough of them, they feel like there's so many other things they have to do, but well, this is really how they scale. I see, I see. And, and so, like, how to hire them? Like, what, 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 is, what is a good... If, if, you're, if you're a bigger company and you're looking for a product manager, potentially a, a candidate is, is screened out, who could be a great product manager, maybe junior, and like very actively. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be honest, correct the hiring mistake if they're wrong. Right. So you need somebody to sign up for that. That's a big sign. Because uh, unfortunately, what so many companies do is they don't hire confidence, maybe because they don't even know what to look for, but for whatever reason, they hire based on potential and they mm -hmm. have nobody there to, to develop them. Mm -hmm. So the people flounder and you end up with a failed company. I see, <laughs> I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a challenge. Um, so just, just checking the time, yeah, there are probably time for one last question. Sure. Um, so uh, we've been talking about products, but there is also like uh, in design, particularly there is a difference between like product design and service design recently. And I'm wondering what's, are there service managers in this aspect? Like we can talk about product managers or like can services be looked at as products or what's the difference? And it's funny you say that too, because uh, I've been here in Europe now working on this sort of two week business trip. And you were the third person to mention that. Uh, <laughs> but I have not heard that topic mentioned in the US for many years. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it's, if it just took a long time to get here or if it's like trying to research here. I see. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and so first of all, we should be clear uh, because the first thing I did is I asked the first person who brought this to me, uh, I said, I want to make sure you're, when you say service design, you mean what I mean by service design. Yeah. Okay. It was the same idea of a very holistic view, every single touch point. So the first thing I'd say, I, I told the person, uh, you're the third person I said this to you, but um, is look, in a good product team, every designer I know would say that is exactly what they do. Mm -hmm. They are serve, they are doing the holistic 
design, every element, a lot of, almost, almost all products today are not purely digital, right? Yeah. They're a mix. Uh, Uber is a great yeah. example, right? There's a whole bunch, but Airbnbs of the world, and there's just a whole lot, or even education, like in the case of a present or something. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we care about the full touch, every touch. So, and, and I would, at least the designers I know would be very offended if somebody came up to them and said, I'm a service designer, I worry about that. You're just, a, you're just a, I don't know, a user experience designer, and you just worry about your little sliver. And they would say, you have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and similarly, uh, it, normally when we talk service design, it is more design-centric. But a few people have said, well, if service designers worry about holistic product uh, design, maybe there should be a service manager, uh, <laughs> which we always love. Service manager is more like uh, yeah, McDonald's or something. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's still uh, a service manager is somebody who thinks about the holistic experience in terms of product. Uh, and, and I will tell you, I don't even remember, somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago, there was a little push, it didn't ever get traction, but a push to rename product managers to service managers. This was when everything became a service, right? Yeah. And SaaS became big, oh, it should be, it's not a product anymore, it's a service. Mm -hmm. um, and same with design. And, then, and I just observed this and thought it was sort of amusing from the side, but then it just all died, it just fizzled out because the product and the design people said, hey, we've been emphasizing holistic experience from the beginning, you know, that is a critical part of that. In fact, that's one of the reasons so many designers go out of their way to talk, call themselves user experience designers. That's really where that came from, every aspect of the experience. We do have interaction design skills, visual design skills, industrial design skills. Um, and I would argue, uh, we got, in fact, I have some great uh, videos of, I mentioned McDonald's, but when they were first designing the first McDonald's, there's a great low fidelity prototyping example where they were working out the service. And it's just, it's been around for a long time. So I'm not sure what's really going on. It, it feels like somebody rediscovered this again many years later, but, uh, but really this is the job. And in a big company, it's hard because you can have a hundred product teams all contributing yeah. to one experience. Now, that doesn't change anything, whether it's called in the quest, you still need somebody looking at that holistic experience, which normally we look to the head of design for, yeah. or a principal designer. Yeah. yeah. Which would a principal designer would look at what the service design description and say that definitely me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a little bit of uh, another marketing wave. I see, I see. Remarketing of uh of an old term. But the point is right, we, you need to worry about a lot more than just the user interface on the phone. You have to worry about the whole experience. But, you know, Amazon figured that out 20 years ago, it's, it is the whole experience. Yeah, yeah, I see, I see, I see. All right, I think uh, our time is up now. Marty, I really would like to thank you for your time and uh, for the conversation. And I hope you also enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for being here with us.